I'm going to read to you the words found in Paul's epistle to the Romans in chapter 11, from verse 17 to verse 22. From verse 17 to verse 22 in the 11th chapter of Paul's epistle to the Romans. And if some of the branches be broken off, and thou being a wild olive tree wert graft in among them, and with them partakest of the root and fatness of the olive tree, Burst not thyself against the branches, but if thou burst, thou bearest not the root, but the root thee. Thou wilt say then, the branches were broken off that I might be grafted in. Well, because of unbelief they were broken off, and thou standest by faith. Be not high-minded, but fear. For if God spared not the natural branches, take heed lest he also spare not thee. Behold, therefore, the goodness and severity of God on them which fell, severity, but toward thee, goodness, if thou continue in his goodness, otherwise thou also shalt be cut off. Now, I uh, want in particular to deal with the, the statement from verse 18 to the end of verse 22, but I read to you again, the 17th verse, in order to remind you of the context. We've been looking for the last two uh, Friday nights at uh, verses 16 and 70. And there we saw that uh, the apostle was very concerned to put clearly to these Gentile believers, for most of these Roman Christians were Gentiles, not all, but the majority undoubtedly uh, were Gentiles, the Apostle has written to them and is in this section in particular concerned to make clear to them the position of both Jew and Gentile in the Christian church. That's the theme. They are members of the church. And he's dealing with this great and extraordinary phenomenon that the Jews, who had been the people of God throughout the centuries, are in the main outside the Christian church, whereas the Gentiles, who had no knowledge of God, the only true God, but were steeped in paganism and all that accompanies paganism, they had come into the church. Now, that's the subject that he's dealing with, as we've seen. And here, in particular, the apostle is giving uh, what is the clearest exposition, perhaps in the whole of the New Testament itself, of this whole matter of the Jew and the Gentile in the Christian church, their relationship to one another and their relationship to the church. Now, he's put that, as we saw last week, especially in this picture of his about the olive tree. The olive tree we defined as being the people of God, starting especially in a, a clear manner, in the clearest manner with Abraham, undoubtedly going back beyond that, even to include Abel at any rate, and Noah, and people like that. Not to say even Adam and Eve. However, the people of God, the thing is made particularly clear with the call of Abraham. And that is why Abram is de described so constantly in the scripture as the father of the faithful. And that is why we as Christian, Gentile Christians, are described in Galatians 3 at the end as the children of Abraham. Because we are the children of faith. Very well. Now the apostle has stated in general 
the, that the church therefore consists of people who belong to this olive tree. Originally, it was almost entirely confined to the Jews. But now, he says, a great change has taken place. The Jews, as a whole, are outside. They've been cut off, cast away, as it were. And the Gentiles have been grafted in. This wild olive tree representing the Gentiles, they've been grafted in to the to this body, this tree. The people of God, whereas the old original people of God are outside. Now then, that's the point at which we've arrived. But now the apostle turns aside, as it were, for a moment in uh, what we cannot but regard as a kind of, uh, well, not so much a digression, as a, a turning aside in order to address an exhortation and a warning to the Gentiles. He has explained their position to them, but now he is particularly anxious that they should be warned against a certain danger that confronted them. And that is what we've got in verses 18 to 22. Then again in verse 23, the apostle will return to the main line, as it were, which is to expound yet further the position of the Jews in this olive tree which constitutes the children of God, the people of God. Now, it's very interesting once more, and I can't refrain from indicating this and emphasizing it, that the great apostle, was always, first and foremost, a pastor and a teacher. Now, here, as we've already seen, and as we shall see yet more clearly, he is handling the profoundest doctrine conceivable. But he never does it in a theoretical manner. He never does it in an academic manner. There's nothing so far removed from the apostle as the kind of dry-as-dust professor who's simply interested in truth, and more or less would go on speaking if there were nobody listening to him. That's not the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul is primarily a preacher, primarily a pastor, not a dry-as-dust theologian ever. He's concerned that these people should understand the truth, and he's equally concerned that they should apply it, that they should see the implications of the truth, and he takes no risks at all. He applies it for them. And he doesn't hesitate to interrupt a tremendous argument like this with this personal exhortation, warning, and application of the truth. Now, that's what we've got, I say, from verse 18 to the end of verse 22. Now then, how do we deal with this little section, this subsection? Well, I have uh, divided it uh, for your consideration under four main headings. First of all, of course, we've got to deal with actual exposition. We've got to make clear and to have clear in our minds exactly what the Apostle is saying. Secondly, we've got to extract from that the teaching of the Apostle. In other words, it's never enough merely to give an alternative translation or to give a kind of paraphrase. We start with that, but you don't stop at that. You then say, what is, the princ what is taught here? What are the principles enunciated? What is the doctrine? What is the truth? that the Apostle is anxious to convey. So that's our second main heading. And then thirdly, in considering the teaching, we shall find ourselves confronted with a problem. 
A problem is raised here, not by the apostle, but a problem of necessity will arise in our minds in this way. How do we reconcile what he teaches here with what he has taught us elsewhere about the final perseverance of the saints and assurance of salvation? So there's a problem implicit in the teaching, and we've got to look at that. And then, fourthly, we, I hope uh, to be able uh, to take the whole of this teaching, having dealt with our problem, and show its relevance and its application to the very situation that is confronting us as Christian people at the present time. We are members of the Christian church, and there's great confusion in the world today with regard to the nature of the church as to what is the church. And there is a popular teaching, what is commonly called ecumenical teaching, which seems to me to be suffering from a failure to understand the essential teaching of the apostle at this very point. So, we, we, we hope to arrive at the fourth section in which we shall show the general relevance of this particular teaching to our position at the present hour. Very well. Now, there's my analysis of the uh, subsection. Let's start then with exposition. What's he talking about here? Well, he, as is his custom, he states his theme straight away at the beginning. At the beginning of verse 18. Here's the point. Boast not against the branches. Boast not thyself, if you like, against the branches. Now, you see, this is where the context comes in. The branches are the bulk of the Jewish nation that is now outside the Christian church. There they were, they've been the people of God. They were, as he's already described them, the natural branches in this olive tree. But they've been plucked away, they've been broken off, some of the branches have been broken off. And here, having described it like that, he says, now, don't you make the mistake of bursting against those branches. He's addressing the Gentile Christians who have been grafted into the olive tree in the place of those natural branches, the Jews, which have been torn out and thrown away for the time being. Now, that's the point. He realizes that there is a danger that the Gentiles who have been brought into the church in this unnatural manner, as we shall find he refers to it in verse 24, you were grafted in, he says, contrary to nature. There is a danger that they will misunderstand this. What is the danger? Well, the danger is the danger of pride. Pride in their position as Gentiles, as members of the Christian church. And accompanying that pride in their own position is the complementary danger of despising the Jews. Now that's the theme. Boast not against the branches. You Gentiles, he says, must not boast in yourselves as over against the Jews. You must not despise them. Now, why, how did they do that? How are they in danger of doing this? Well, the first argument seems to be this. That they just take it for granted that they are better than the Jews. They say, here we are, we are in the church, we are the majority of the people in the church. 
Well, therefore, it's obvious that we are the best part of this and the church is ours. Now, the apostle immediately answers that in the um, second part of the 18th verse. Verse 18a, if you like, the statement, don't do this. Then 18b, the second half of the verse, he gives them the reasons for not doing so. And the answer is this. Don't do that, he says, because if thou burst, realize that you don't bear the root, but the root bears you. He's reminding them, in other words, that they are not the tree, but that they, from the outside, have been grafted into the tree, and as he's already reminded them, they are what they are because they have been enabled to partake of the root and fatness of the olive tree. The end of verse 17. That's his old case. We needn't go over that again. That is what makes us Christian. That we are put into Christ, as it were, put into the church, into Christ, and we receive this life that is in him, this life of God in the soul, the root and fatness of the olive tree. So his immediate reply to them is this. He says, you've got no grounds for bursting at all. He says, because you don't bear the roots. You don't carry the roots, as it were. You are not responsible for the life of the roots, but the life of the roots is responsible for you. Now, he's concerned in particular in that statement with the, the whole position, of course, of the Jews. And it's not just another way of telling them this. Now, he says, don't you Gentiles lose your heads and begin to burst and think, that you are some remarkable and extraordinary people because you're members of the Christian church. Let me remind you, he says, that uh, before you ever came into the Christian church, there were others there before you. And those who were there before them, of course, were the Jews. The apostle has reminded us at the beginning of the chapter, I myself also am an Israelite. The first believers, the first Christians, were after all Jews. And he's reminding the Gentiles that they owe all the blessings that they're enjoying, ultimately, in a sense, to the Jews. Now, you remember our Lord himself. He put this in a striking statement which he made to the woman of Samaria. There was an old feud between the Jews and the Samaritans. And uh, our Lord is talking to this woman of Samaria. She uh, turned to him and said, Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and you say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Jesus saith unto her, Woman, believe me, the hour cometh, when ye shall neither in this mountain nor yet at Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship you know not what. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. I've been reading to you verses 20 to 22 in the fourth chapter of John's Gospel. Salvation is of the Jew. Now, we all ought to be clear about this. The New Testament, in a sense, comes out of the Old Testament. Or look at it in the way we were considering it last Friday night in terms of the olive tree. After all, what happens to us as Gentiles is that we are brought into these covenants that God made with the Jews, with Abraham their father, and reaffirmed them and reiterated them throughout the centuries to the Jews. So that, he says, look here, don't you Gentiles begin to burst? You haven't started this process. You are not the originators of this. You've been brought into it. You don't carry the root, but the root carries you. 
And thus he reminds them at once that they have no reason whatsoever for boasting of themselves and despising the Jews. They owe a great debt to the Jews and they must never forget it. And we must never forget it. A way in which you can look at this, if you like, is this. And it shows you how the early church was guided by the Holy Spirit. Has it ever occurred to you why that church, which was mainly Gentile, should ever have kept its hold upon the Old Testament? There was obviously a temptation to them. That's what the apostle is dealing with. To say, well, of course, all that's happened until now doesn't matter at all. The Jews have gone wrong. They're nothing. They're nobody. We don't need their Old Testament, their literature, their books and so on. Not of no interest to us at all. Now they were saved from that. And they were partly saved from that by the kind of teaching that the Apostle gives at this point. Salvation doesn't start in the New Testament. As I showed you last Friday night, this is but a continuance of something God has been doing right from the beginning. With Abram and the patriarchs and the fathers, we are just brought into this. We don't bear the roots, the roots bear us. Very well, there is his first answer. But then, uh, having uh, dealt with that, he uh, puts up uh, a second false argument uh, to which the uh, Gentiles are prone. And he puts it like this, in the 19th verse. Very well, he says, uh, if... Uh, if I say that to you, you will now say to me, thou wilt say then, oh yes, that's all right, but wait a minute. After all, those branches were broken off that I might be grafted in. You haven't answered the question, says this objector. All right, I'll, I'll accept in general, if you like, that uh, I am now a child of Abraham and that all I am and all I have is to be traced to the fact that I've been grafted into this olive tree. But after all, it is simply a fact that uh, the Jews, uh, as a bulk and as a nation, have been taken out. They've been extracted, as it were. They've been broken off. And I, and we Gentiles, have been put in, in their place. Now, says this Gentile objector, there must be some reason for this. Why are they taken out and I put in instead? Isn't it obvious? We must be superior. We must be better. There's no other explanation of it. If they've been taken out that we may be taken in, obviously they're inferior to us or we are superior to them. It's inevitable. That's the second false argument that is put forward by the Gentiles who are tending to misunderstand this whole doctrine. Now then, this is a very serious matter. So serious that the Apostle deals with it in his customary, exhaustive manner. He's taking no risks at all about this point. He wants them to see how any such thinking on the part of the Gentiles is rarely a betrayal of the fact that they haven't thoroughly understood the whole question of the way of salvation. So how does he deal with it? Well, he deals with it like this. First of all, he gives them a direct answer. This is the first part of the 20th verse. Watch his method. I will say then, the branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. Well, says the apostle, all right. Because of unbelief, they were broken off, and thou standest by faith. What's it, what's it, what, what is this direct answer? In verse 20a. 
the first part of verse 20. The answer is this. All right, says the apostle, I of course accept your fact. The fact is that the Jews as a nation and as a people are no longer in the olive tree. They're not in the church. They're outside. That's what he's been saying at great length from the beginning of chapter 9. Your facts, he says, are perfectly right. But the deduction that you've drawn from the facts is altogether and entirely wrong. Of course, he says, the Jews have been broken off. But they have not been broken off for the reason that you are assuming. Very well. What is this? Well, what he's saying is this. He says, if you think that the Jews have been broken off and that you Gentiles have been put in because Gentiles are inherently superior to the Jews, well then, he says, you have fallen into precisely the same error as the Jews themselves have fallen into. And you completely misunderstood the way of salvation. How? Well, like this. Salvation is never a matter of nationality or of merit. That's the first statement, the first argument. By saying we are in because we are superior, you're falling back on nationality. You are saying Gentiles are better than Jews. Yes, but you see, says the apostle, that's the very mistake of the Jews. They thought they were the people of God, they were superior to everybody, they alone were to be saved. Simply because they were Jews. You're repeating their own error. And the error is to think that what decides whether you're a saved person, a Christian or not, is your nationality. The moment you begin to think that, you're already wrong. If you think you're saved by your nationality, or by your own inherent goodness, or any merit that belongs to you, you are denying the whole of the Christian teaching with regard to salvation. Why? Well, because as he puts it. Well, because of unbelief, they were broken off. And thou standest by faith. You see, the thing that determines and controls salvation is not nationality or upbringing or inherent goodness or anything you've done. It's one thing only. Faith. Belief. What matters in this realm is one thing only. Is it unbelief or faith? Which is it? You're one or the other. You're either an unbeliever or you're a believer. That is the only thing that matters. The Jews, he said, were cast off because of unbelief. Not because they're Jews. Not because there's some inherent weakness in being a Jew. No, no. The Jews are cast off solely because of their unbelief. And why are you Gentiles then? Not because you're a wonderful people. Simply because you've exercised faith. Nothing else at all. Now, this is just exposition. Now, in, in that connection, I must take up this word, standeth. Well, because of unbelief, they were broken off, and thou standest by faith. This is a word we've found the apostle using before, at the beginning of chapter 5, in the second verse. He says there in chapter 5, Therefore, being justified by faith, we are peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now listen. By whom also we have access by faith 
into this grace wherein we stand. Some of you may remember when we were dealing with that. I rather remember that I gave a, a whole evening to that. This standing of the, of the Christian. That the Christian is a man who is enabled to stand in the presence of God. Now, what do you mean by this standing? Well, it's the same idea as the psalmist puts before us in the first psalm. Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law doth he meditate day and night. And he shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water, that bringeth forth his fruit in his season. His leaf also shall not wither, and whatsoever he doeth shall prosper. Listen, but the ungodly are not so, but are like the chaff, which the wind driveth away. Therefore, the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment. That's it. They shan't stand. No sinners in the congregation of the righteous. Far from standing, they're like the chaff that the wind driveth and bloweth away. This is a tremendous notion that we must never lose sight of. A Christian is not a man who grovels, as it were. A Christian is not a man who is lounging. Once a man realizes the way of salvation, he stands. Being justified by faith, we have peace with God. These great affirmations. There is therefore now no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. That's an affirmation. The Christian is a man who stands. He isn't uncertain. He isn't hesitant. He's not, as it were, half in and half out, wondering whether he's saved or... He stands. We are meant to stand. And, says the apostle, you stand by faith. And for no other reason whatsoever. You can't stand in the presence of God simply because you're a Gentile. You can't stand in the presence of God simply because you're a good moral person. It's impossible. Nobody can stand in the presence of God in his own inherent righteousness. There is none righteous, no, not one. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The whole world lieth guilty, that's it, lieth guilty before God. But in Christ you stand. You don't lie, you stand. And so, you see, he brings in this wonderful word again. And I couldn't pass it without emphasizing it and repeating it in this way, in order that you may see that once a man understands this way of salvation, he stands. He goes with boldness and confidence into the presence of God. We have this access, he says, into this grace wherein we stand. Or to use the language of Hebrews 10.19, we have boldness to enter into the holiest of all by the blood of Jesus. And when the great day of judgment comes, we say with Count Zinzendorf, as translated by John Wesley, All shall I stand in thy great day. For who ought to my charge shall lay? Fully absolved by thee I am. That's it. I shall stand. Or with top lady, the terrors of law and of God with me can have nothing to do my Saviour's obedience and blood hide all my transgressions from view. Very well, says the Apostle. 
realize that you stand as you do solely by faith and by nothing else. Very well, there is his direct answer to this suspicious and foolish and arrogant argument of the Gentiles that they have been grafted in because the Jews being unworthy were cut out. All a matter of their superiority. He gives a direct answer. He says, you, you are denying the whole principle of justification by faith only. You are showing an elementary ignorance of the whole way of salvation. But he doesn't leave them at that. He starts with it. And that is the way to start. You start by correcting false doctrine. You enunciate the true doctrine. But if you've got a pastor's heart like this man had, and if you're a preacher as he was, you don't just say a thing like that. You, you drive it home. So he proceeds at once in the last part of this 20th verse to issue a warning. Be not high-minded, but fear. Now he is reprimanding them. They deserve it. The arrogance of anybody claiming that he is in the Christian church because of what he is and who he is. This is not only wrong, it's, there's something worse. It's terribly dangerous. So he issues a sharp reprimand. Be not high-minded, but fear. Now, this is always the greatest danger. The danger of being high-minded. The danger of having a wrong view of ourselves. The danger of overestimating ourselves. The danger of thinking that we are better than we are. And the only antidote to that, he tells them, is fear. And he repeats that letter by saying, take heed. In verse 21, if God spared not the natural branches, take heed. Lest he also spare not thee. So, you see, having put them right with, with his direct answer on the pure matter of doctrine, he issues this terrific warning. Beware of being high-minded. This is a great theme running right through the whole of the Bible. I hope to, when I come to the teaching, uh, the exposition of the teaching, to explain it in greater detail to you. I'm just expounding the passage for the moment. So, the third thing he does... Having now put them right on this question of justification by faith only, and then having driven it home with the warning and the reprimand, he then produces an unanswerable argument, which is going to put this matter right once and forever, in verse 21. And here it is. If God spared not the natural branches, take heed, lest he also spare not thee. Uh, why do I say that this is unanswerable? Well, I'll go further. I'll say that at this point the apostle simply demolishes this foolish case put up by the Gentiles in their ignorance. He demolishes it completely. How does he do so? Well, he again uh, takes up what is obviously his favorite formula. We've seen him doing it so often. It's the, it's the formula which says, if this, then that. This is sheer logic, of course. And the apostle was a master at logic. If this be true, very well, then this follows. Take heed. 
What is this? Well, this is the argument again from the greater to the lesser. Oh, we found him doing this almost endlessly. One of my favorite illustrations of his doing this is Romans 5.10. For if when we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, how much more or much more being reconciled we shall be saved by his life. If God has done the greatest thing, he can't fail to do the lesser thing. It's the same kind of argument here. Well, what is this greater thing and what is this lesser thing to which I am referring? Well, it's this. And there is no answer to this. If God spared not the natural branches, if, in other words, God has taken out of this olive tree the Jew, who were the natural branches, who were the, his own people, the people that he had created himself for himself for his own peculiar uh, possession, if God has dealt with them because of their arrogant pride in their nationality by taking them out of the olive tree and casting them aside, if he's done that with them of all people, well, to put it at its very lowest, it shouldn't surprise us if he does that with people who've been brought in in an unnatural manner and who are not his own original people. That's the argument. Let me put it to you like this. Charles Hodge, I think, deals with this in a most excellent manner. It's an argument, if you like, in, in this way. Imagine a man who'd got a son. And, of course, he looked to this son to carry on his business and his affairs and his tradition. And he lavished his love upon him and he blessed him. And he did everything he could for his good pleasure and for his well-being. But unfortunately, this son turns out to be a poor character, misbehaves himself, insults his father, does everything contrary to his father's will, and the father can see the whole of his purpose going astray. And he feels this to such an extent that he puts his son on one side and he takes, if you like, a servant or somebody whom he knows or somebody else's son with whom he's acquainted and he adopts this other man and puts him into the position of his son. Now this is the apostle's argument. He says, if this man is such a man and such a righteous man and has got such a view of his own purpose, that he even puts his own natural son on one side, you be very careful as the adopted son. If he will put his natural son on one side because of his ill behavior, how much more so is he likely to do it with you? Now that's the argument, and it's a most powerful argument. It is an unanswerable argument. He here demolishes the case of the Gentiles once and forever. Look here, says Paul. It was because of their arrogant pride in themselves that God has put aside the Jews, the people whom he prepared for himself. If he's done that with them, how much more so? Will he do that with people like you, Gentiles, who come in from the outside and have been grafted in, in this, as it were, unnatural manner? Now, that is the argument, I say, from the greater to the lesser. It is the argument 
from what God has already done to what he will inevitably do with others who are in a like situation and position. And because of the fact, and because it is the greater, the greatest of all, it is, I say, something that completely demolishes this wrong and false argument which has been put forward here by this Gentile objector. Very well. There is the third way in which he deals with this position. And then, fourthly, in verse 22, he goes on to draw a great deduction from all this with regard to the character of God and God's ways with respect to men. Now, here it is. Behold, therefore, the goodness and severity of God on them which fell, severity, but toward thee, goodness, if thou continue in his goodness, otherwise thou also shalt be cut, out, cut off. Now, here is, of course, a great general statement. And, as I say, it is a kind of deduction. That's why he starts by saying, Behold, therefore, in the light of what God has actually done, this is the only conclusion to which we can come. In other words, he lifts up the whole argument to this position. Men become boastful and proud and despise others in the kingdom of God for one reason only, and that is that they fail to realize the truth about God himself. That's what it all ultimately comes to. This is uh, the root cause of nearly all our troubles. I want to show you this in greater detail when we come to the teaching. I'm simply expounding his statement to you this evening. Here it is, he says. How has it become possible? How is it conceivable that anybody should burst in the presence of God, whether Jew or Gentile? And there's only one answer. It is that they have failed to understand the truth about God, about his nature, about his character, about his attributes. And therefore, he says, nothing is more important than that you should be clear about this. God has revealed the truth concerning himself. And for this particular object we are dealing with here, he has revealed not only his goodness, but also his severity. And men and women get into trouble, always, because instead of taking the revelation of the character of God and his ways with respect to men as we have it revealed in the Bible, they substitute their own ideas for that. Or they take a part of the teaching of the Bible and they reject the remainder. Now, it, it will be my object when we come to the teaching the doctrine involved in this statement, to work that out with you in detail. But you can think immediately for yourselves how this is so applicable at this present time. We are living in an age when the people even justify the fact that they never attend a place of worship at all on the grounds that God is love. They justify immorality in the same way God is love. 
There is no such thing as the wrath of God. There is no justice. There is no severity. That's the very thing that is happening at the present time. Men and women who believe in God, so they say, they don't believe in God as he's revealed himself. They've got partial notions. They pick and choose. They accept what they like. They reject what they don't like. In other words, they don't worship God at all. They worship an image which they themselves have erected. And there are others, of course, who go still further, who instead of taking the biblical revelation in any sense, discard it completely, and in terms of philosophy and so on, construct a God after their own image and say that this is God. And obviously, therefore, they are wrong in the whole of their thinking and become wrong likewise in their behavior and in their conduct. Well, now, there is the exposition of what the Apostle says about this whole matter. I'm afraid we've got to leave it at that. It's, we haven't the time even to begin with the, the with the teaching that is involved in all this. We've simply dealt with my first big section. Get this fact clearly into your mind as to what the Apostle is saying here. He is dealing with people who say we are Christians because of something that is inherently true about us. That's the thing that he's dealing with. The Gentiles, like the Jews before them, imagining that they were in Simply because they're such good people, because they're superior to others, and so on and so forth. That's the thing he's dealing with. He's dealing with people who think they're Christians because they've been born in Great Britain and not in India. He's dealing with people who think that they're Christians because they were christened or baptized, it doesn't matter which. He's dealing with people who think they're Christians because of the good life they've lived, or because of their excellent natural moral characters. He's dealing with people who are boasting about anything at all. That's what he's dealing with. And you notice what he says. He says this is all due to the fact that you have misunderstood that salvation is by faith alone. This basic principle, it's a denial of that. And still more, it is a failure to realize the truth about God. And that the only thing that matters is our relationship to God. And that that is always a matter of faith only. Very well. God willing, we'll proceed with our discussion of the teaching next Friday evening. Let us pray. O oh Lord, our God, we pray thee to look down upon us with mercy and with compassion. We have been considering this statement concerning the first Gentiles who came into the Christian church and we see so much of the same thing by nature in ourselves. Oh God, we acknowledge more than ever that we see clearly that we are saved by grace through faith and that not of ourselves, it is the gift of God. Oh Lord, Open our understandings, we pray thee. Enable us especially to heed the warning of thy word. Be not high-minded, but fear. O oh Lord, by thy spirit apply this great truth to us one by one. 
that it may save us from grievous error and all that follows from such error. Keep us, we pray thee, as little children, keep us to that simplicity which is in Christ Jesus. And now, may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship and the communion of the Holy Spirit abide and continue with us now this night throughout the remainder of this hour, short, uncertain, earthly life and pilgrimage, and evermore. Amen.